Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., but that's why the book is named the Spencer Hayward Rule because it'll give those players, which they don't know me. All of these NBA players have no idea what I did and what it's, what it was all about. But it give them a chance to know that uh, there was someone who stood up for them. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to Basketball Hall of Famer and legend Spencer Haywood upon the occasion of the new book, The Spencer Haywood Rule, Battles Basketball and the Making of an American Iconoclast. Now, if you don't know Spencer Haywood, goodness gracious, 1968 Olympian, ABA MVP, NBA All-Star, and one of the most talented players of his generation. He was also the name on the famous Haywood versus NBA lawsuit, which paved the way for underclassmen to join the league. So anytime you hear about somebody going hardship or being one and done, all of that is the Spencer Haywood effect. And we're gonna talk to Spencer Haywood about his life and legacy on this week's pod. You're gonna love it. Also, I've got some choice words about baseball and the Black Lives Matter movement. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and more, but first, Spencer Haywood. You know, I just wanted to start by asking you, I'm sure you've had so many opportunities over the years to tell your story. And now, you know, you're putting out this book, The Spencer Haywood Rule. Why did you decide to do it now? David Stern. (laughs) (laughs) David Stern and the NBA, um, everybody came together and said, well, let's help Spence tell this story because of the time in this right. The time is now good to educate the players and make them aware of what Stanton did. And it's, you know, and so we got together with Triumph, with Charlie Rosenzweig from the NBA office. We met over at Triumph Book in Chicago. Um, and we just started kicking it around. And all of a sudden it came to fruition. And it was just beautiful. And then I was able to uh, get Mark Spears to join the, join the team and Gary Washburn to join the team. From, Mark is from undefeated, mm-hmm. NBA.com and NBA, ESPN. And, and Mark is, I mean, and Gary, you know, is with the Boston Globe. So, and we start chopping away, chopping away bit by bit. And lo and behold, it just... 
turned into some incredible good stuff, you know? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. It's been a joy for me to read this week. I really thought it was fantastic. And because there was so much, I mean, I, I thought I knew so much about you before reading it. And then I found out I didn't even really know even half the story. (laughs) <laughs> maybe not even yeah. 10% of the story to so be how honest do you like me living in the Delta um, in the Mississippi? well that's actually the first thing I wanted to ask you is like when I was reading this I mean I'm reading about you know you growing up in rural Mississippi um what, what were your aspirations when you were growing up like did, did could you ever have imagined that you'd become Spencer Haywood? Like, what were you thinking when you were growing up that your ceiling was in terms of what you could do in life? Well, my ceiling was to be the best cotton picker the state had ever seen. Mm. And that was my plan. I mean, because if you don't know anything outside of your little community, or you don't know anything other than, you know, what is in front of you, and in my location in the Delta, it's like we have like 350 people scattered all around <laughs> in this in our little town that ran, you know, I don't know how many square miles, but um, and and you spend all of your time picking cotton in the cotton field, and you just kind of like, well, that's what I want to do. I want to be the best cotton picker because you you my comp- my my competitive spirit was there, and lo and behold. Picking that cotton and hat that in, at attitude translated into basketball. How I can explain that to you is this way. You know, I would get up early in the morning while the cotton was wet and pick my cotton with dew on it. And, and then I was learning to drag a sack, which was, you know, when you fill it up, it's like 100 pounds. So your legs was building up and your, your body was building up naturally. And then I was picking from two rows of cotton, a row one here and a row on the other side, and the sack is dragging through the middle. And I was getting handed coordination. I'm just telling you this stuff. This is some real stuff. Mm-hmm. So you hand and eye coordination, and you, and you just, and all of a sudden, when I got to a basketball, I was like, oh, this is pretty easy. And, um, because it was like just work, you know? And so my first basketball, we didn't have money to buy one because we were very, very poor, but rich in spirit. And so when that, when we, um, when I got my first basketball, my mom made us a basketball. It didn't bounce, made it out of the cotton sack with all croaker sack with all of the cotton and bed spreads and stuff, stuff, stuffed in it. And you were supposed to, because I had, you know, like all my brothers, we played too. So we were like taking one, two, and you pass, or bop, bop, and you pass. You never could take three, and unless you were my brother Andrew, and then you know, of course, mm. <laughs> he took three. <laughs> and and the, the basket, the hoop was a big barrel rim, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can always drop it in the barrel rim. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So you got your, your confidence up and everything. And then lo and behold, one day we found one in the garbage dump in the back of our, our house and we had to put a patch on it. It was a vault ball. Back in the day, it was called a ball called vault, V-O-L-T. We put a um, a patch on it 
and blew it up. And man, that thing felt so good bouncing. I'm like, oh God, this is joy, beyond joy. And then we got a rim and we put that up and we, you know, we traveled from house to house with that rim, carrying it, my brothers and I, trying to find a game because we got tired of playing against each other. And that's how I started basketball. Did you have, when did you first have the sense though that you were good because you you know you're not like it's not like it's 2020 and you could watch it on TV or watch it on your phone or see how other players play you know you're just playing in this small circle of folks in Mississippi how, how did you know you were any good Well I didn't I didn't know I was any good but you know when I got to elementary school uh, it's where I started to play and started to do some things. And, and then um, we got down to this tournament in, in Louise, Louise, Mississippi, which is up from Silver City. And remember, there is no silver and it ain't no city. <laughs> 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 so we go down there and we're playing. And this is the first time I've ever played in the gym because I've been playing outside on a dust bowl, you know, like just because we didn't have a gym at this school. So we had a, you know, we play outside at two baskets. So it was just great playing out there. And when we got down there, uh, uh, all of a sudden, everybody was like, this guy can play. And I was like, you talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> because I had been beat down so much by my brother, Andrew, you can't play and you're never going to be a player. And take this and you take this jump shot in your, in your eye because he was like, you know, three years older. So he was like this. Mm -hmm. But it made me great. And then when we got to the tournament finals and people were talking, oh, he's he's good. So guess who showed up for the tournament final and got on the other team? Came from high school, came down and got on the other team was Andrew. I'm like, oh. hey, he's cheating. He's cheating. He he can't be a and, and we know we won it by forfeit, but all he talked about it that night, boy, if you hadn't won it by forfeit, I would have been, you know, I would have been the champion. I'm like, but you illegal. And so that was the first time I ever recognized the idea that I was, you know, could be a basketball player. And lo and behold, between elementary and junior high school, I we don't have junior high school there. We just have elementary and then you go into the high school and you go in as an eighth grader or ninth grader. I get to, to high school and I grew, I grew out of my body. And so mm -hmm. my coordination, my everything was just out of order. And then I, you know, then I got it back together and then we was playing on the high school team. And then I was like the, you got a 12 man, 12 man team. I was like the 14th player because they just wanted me to, to play because I was taller than everybody else. And, and I loved playing. And so one night, our starting center threw a brick through some property in Bell Zone in the town up from us. And the coach come and looked me in the eye, you're in. And I'm like, oh, where's the bathroom? But anyway, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I get the tip off. And the guy kick it, you know, he kick it back to me, and I'm try I'm confused. I'm like, which way is the basket? Because I'm just so excited, and I just took off dribbling. And I'm like, yeah. And everybody in the gym was like, hey, 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 you, what are you doing? 
was like, I'm going to make this layup. Boom, I made the layup, and I looked over to my sister Laverne, and I was like, boy, did I do great. And she had her head between her legs, like, you mm-hmm. put it in the wrong basket. Mm-hmm. And then didn't your coach so, say to you, it's okay, other people have done that too? It happens to everybody. No, he didn't say that. He was like, that was a stupid move. But you're going to play. Uh-huh. Keep playing. Keep playing. And so I just played hard that night. And then, you know, I had a good night. And then when I got back to school, because, see, Beltoni is located, this this little town is located in a bigger place than we were. We were like dirt, dirt country. And so when I got back to school the next day, everybody was like, oh, man, we got a star. And I'm still trying to figure out who they talking about. Mm. And that's when, when the girl Barbara Holmes looked looked at me and I was like, I must be a star. (laughs) (laughs) Now, fast forward. um, I'm going to do a big fast forward to uh, the 1968 Olympics where you were the leading scorer for that gold medal team. But before we talk about that, can you tell my listeners the birth certificate story? Because you needed your birth certificate to actually get on the plane and make the team and go to Mexico City, but th- there was one problem first. Yeah, there was a little minor problem, like, where's your birth certificate so we can get a passport? And I was like, well, it's got to be at home in Mississippi. So we called my mother, and and she said, yeah, I do have it here, son. It's right here, and they can come and get it. And it was like, can't you send it? Boy, I'm not sending my Bible up there. <laughs> so <laughs> she put me down on the John 20, I'll check it, John 20 or John 21 in the Bible. And we had to, the Olympic Committee had to send down some people to, uh, to, to verify it. Then we took it to the Jackson, to the vital statistics in Jackson. I get back, I got a birth certificate, and I read my name, and it says, Spencey. <laughs> so we had to change my name back to Spencer, and then I was on my way to uh, in Mexico City. My God, what a what a what a beautiful coming into that big city because I was at Trinidad State Junior College, so I was like you know in a small area down in the, in the corner of Colorado, New New uh, New Mexico. And so when we got there, I mean it was just ironic there was George Foreman there was John Carlos Tommy Smith and then they had the the idea that there was going to be a boycott and so you had Jesse Owens there you had I mean to talk to us Jesse Owens came in and talked to the group Wilma Rudolph talked to the group uh Willie White uh, and Dina Deverona she was a swimmer but she was you know mm-hmm. saying hey we can't do anything we gotta we gotta do this right John Carlos <laughs> he was just, he was kind of pumped up and stuff. And, you know, Harry and all of the other people were outside. And it was just an interesting time. And then I didn't know about the, the fight for human rights until I got there that they had had a meeting beforehand with Martin Luther King, um, set up by Dr. Harry Edwards, uh, all of the great civil rights leaders. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the great baseball player, number one, Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. Jackie Robinson, all of those people were saying, you know, we, we can't stop the games because 
that would be a strike against all of the human rights issues that we are talking about. And so, uh, so we went and participated. And once we got into the games and we just playing and playing, I, I know I was personally playing well, my team was playing well. Uh, and then the track events started to, started to take place. And lo and behold, when we, uh, before our final game, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, uh, Lee Evans, uh, also uh, Bob Beeman. You know, Bob had his event before the other events. And so when he jumped nearly out of the pit, everybody was like excited. Oh, my God, we're going we're gonna to have this medal count that's going to be huge. And then when Tommy and John ran, uh, they finished first and third. And when they got up on the podium with the black glove that so many people see today with the, with the hand salute, um, man, they, Avery Brundage, who was the head of our Olympic uh, committee, he just told them they got to get out of the, the compound in which we were staying. And it was just so horrible to see that because they had came there, they had participated, and they didn't do what Kareem did. They didn't boycott. They just and Elvin Hayes and Wesley Unsell. I don't. I, I, they say they never boycotted, but they signed that pro contract. And if you had signed an NBA, uh, NBA contract before you bought it out your your um, amateur status, so those two guys didn't didn't play. And then Creams said he went to Harlem to do some work with some kids. And um, man, but looking at Tommy and John leaving. Our commissary, our, com- our compound, uh, that was so hurting. It was such a horrible thing. And then they put threats on us and everything. And that's when uh, when George had the next fight, George Foreman, he had the next fight. He had an American flag in his hand after he knocked out the Russian, right. and which was a great thing because he was just making a statement that, uh, you know, I'm an American and me, he and I would always be in the in the, in the commissary eating because we were the two youngest guys there. We were both 19 and just turned. So uh, George was trying to not be going to that boy's home because he was living in a in a boy's home, I think, in Houston. So, and he wanted to be champion of the world. So that was uh, that was sort of our experience there. And then it came around to us playing. And we were playing for the finals. We Yugoslavia knocked off Russia, so we didn't get the big matchup that we wanted. And so, uh, so we played against the Yugoslavs. I mean, I was just so nervous and so panicky <laughs> that uh, you could see it in the game today. I watched some of the game footage. You'll see me go down and make a layup and run straight to the back, straight into the locker room, throw up, come back out, and run straight back on the floor. Because I didn't know the, the how important and how big this was until Howard Cosell told me before the game, this is really, really big. And if you mess this up, they're going to kill you. <laughs> you know, um, that's the other thing, This is a Beautiful bit of a, <laughs> a, a self indulgent question. I'm sorry, but. Um, I wrote a book with John Carlos. I wrote uh, his book with him, his autobiography. And so, you yeah, know, I, I know John, John very well. 
And just because I yeah, know. John... Let me ask you a question. Let me oh, ask sure. you a question. Please. All right. And since you wrote the book for John, why is it that Tommy and John, I see them, their picture and their likeliness everywhere. When I when I was when I when I go to Italy, when I go to uh, China, when I go any place in America, you see this likeliness and you see this image. Why didn't they ever get paid for that? Oh. Why is everybody using their image? Even the Olympics today is using it. You yeah. know, I'm looking at new stuff. That that always rubbed me wrongly because why? If they make the supreme sacrifice, why didn't? I mean, at least Black America, why didn't we take care of them like we should have? And it's like a history of that. That's Maybe you can answer question. it. I mean, I the only thing I can say is that John's been asking that question for over 50 years. Over you know, we talked last week. Yeah. Yeah, John and I talk, we talk weekly, you know, and so, and I'm always like, why? So I, I'm, you know. I'm going to try to get it to our players, the NBA players, so that they will know that, you know, something needs to be done about that. Yeah, I, people are selling their stuff like it's crazy, man. And you can't even go on any site and not look at that, that pose on the, on the victory stand on a shirt. That's true. Like, how is that possible? No, you, it's all over the place. Uh, medallions, necklaces, posters. It's really something, and no, he's never seen any money for it or anything. Not a not a time, and, and that's a horrible thing. I didn't want to go off too far, but that has always bothered me because I was there when I saw them leave our compound, and I was like, "Man, black folks are gonna make sure that these guys are taken care of. They will never want again." <laughs> you know, yeah. The thing that, that I wanted to um, ask you is what your impression is, was of John Carlos in 1968, like when you met him and stuff, like what you thought about him. Well, he was he was this cool dude from from New York City, and he was you know he's he was abrasive, you know. He had he had that swag, and it was like I was like, that's my guy because Tommy was quiet and and not really yeah. Like John. But John was like, he was like the whole team. I mean, of, of like when you talk about the Olympics, you talk about, uh, you know, the spirit of the, the swimmers, the shot putters and everything. When John came in, you were like, he's here. And he was talking plenty of stuff. He had that goatee. We were like, whoa, man, I sure can't wait to grow me one of these. <laughs> so John was that exciting. He was so exciting. And the day when when Jesse Owens was saying, you know, you guys got to be quiet and be cool, and you're gonna get jobs when you get back home, and there's gonna be jobs and stuff. And John spoke up again. I was like, Ooh, John said what to Jesse Owens? <laughs> mm -hmm. No, so, you know, that's been my hero all the way through this journey. You know, he and Tommy, but. John in particular because you know he's like me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm feeling a, a very more braver vibe. than me. Feeling just Dave, a, very, a little bit more braver than me. But. Oh, <laughs> I don't know about that, but that actually yeah. runs right into my next question. Um, because people, you know, the book is called the Spencer Haywood Rule. 
Um, you know, you're the person you, you are in so many respects, like the Kurt flood of professional basketball. You know, you are the person who laid the groundwork, blazed the trail. So people didn't have to wait four years to come out and play ball. Um, I want to actually earn a living. I wanted to ask you why in your mind, did you want to leave the university of Detroit early? And did you realize the stir it would cause? I didn't realize the stir it would cause that was going to take place, but I did kind of feel it. And Coach Robinson, who is my father and who was the first black African, African-American coach to coach in NC2A history division one, um, we knew it was going to be some, some trouble. And when Hannah Storm's father, Mike Storm, came to Detroit and was like explaining it to me that, you know, this is going to upset the whole journey because the ABA was folding at the time and they didn't get Kareem in the draft. So they came after me and they had it figured out that if we get the guys early, then we could beat the NBA because we can't beat them in the draft anymore and we could save our leg. And so they came to me and put the offer on the table. And and I was really upset because I came back to the University of Detroit with the hopes that Will Robinson would be the coach. And we had uh, George Gervin, Ralph Simpson. We had a number of players that were, were going to transfer or come to the University of Detroit and we was building this powerhouse. And then when they reneged on the deal, I, I just felt betrayed because that was the whole conversation of going back to the university so when we got moving forward ahead we, we got when we got I arrived in Denver the press was there everybody was there and it was it was screaming about uh, you know you leave in college the University of Detroit had its lawyers and its legal team there you know you owe us for your scholarship you do this and I'm like but I thought we're not we're athletes student athletes so why are you talking about I owe you money now. Uh, and Mark Storm did a, a good thing in the press conference. He said, ladies and gentlemen of the press, Spencer Haywood families in Mississippi making $2 a day, which was true. My mother was making $2 a day picking cotton. Her back was out. He explained it because I had explained it to him and I didn't know he was going to use it all. And and we are, we have decided to give him reparation, and everybody was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> so when he threw that out, it was like, "Wait a minute here." And so they said, "Well, okay, let's leave him alone. Let him let him play because he's trying to save his family." And the whole idea was with the ABA is that if I could get five points, two rebounds, you know, and have a pretty good season, just play it then they would have this inroad to early players um, and coming out of college early, uh, Julius and those guys who came left right after me to come into the NBA, I mean, to the ABA. And so that year I got fortunate. I had a fortunate year where I averaged 30 points Jeez. and 19.5 rebounds per game. And I was the rookie of the year, MVP of the all-star game, MVP of the league. And I'm like, Wow, they're going to love me forever. <laughs> <laughs> and then the NBA was starting to like sniff, let's take him out of there. 
You know, let's take him out of the ABA, but he would have to sit out a year, but we, we can get him. And because at that same time, J.W. Ringsby, the owner of the Rockets, came up with this idea. I'm going to give you a the largest contract in the history of basketball. And they presented it to me at 1.9. I had no no reservations about the idea that they were cheated. And so what they gave me was a contract for 1.9. I would get, you know, like 100000 a year. And the other 1.5 would derive from us after, I, I mean, I just was signing shit and didn't know what I was doing. Uh, uh, this money would derive from them putting $10,000 in a dog off plan in the stock market. And I would start drawing this money from age 50 to age 70. And I would have to be employed by Ringsby truck line to complete it all. Huh? I know <laughs> it was insane. My attorney, I got an attorney then, and, and so he looked at it. He was like, it's garbage. It's garbage. Al Roth, it's garbage. This is just garbage. Let's go in here and make them, make, them, make them pay up. Let's get them straight. So we go into the, <laughs> to the rocket. Well, we want to get this contract fully, uh, you know, straightened out and want to get this. And the owner said, I got him. He can't go back to college. He's, he didn't want to sit out another year. So we got him. Uh, honored, you're going to honor this contract. And by the way, you take your black ass out of here and take that Jew-ass lawyer with you. Mm. And that's how we left out of here. And Sam Schumann, which is uh, the owner of the Seattle Supersonics, had the idea that, hey, wait a minute. And he and Jerry Colangelo was like, we're not going to let them get all of those players. Maybe we should look at the idea because they were the two expansion teams, Phoenix Suns and the Seattle Seattle Supersonics. So they were like, you know, maybe we should we should raid the ABA. So Jerry Colangelo had got Connie Hawkins a year before from the Pipers, I think it was. And then Sam said, I, I'm old, the next player that's coming out of there. And so I was an underclassman. So he said, well, you know, we're going to fight. We're going to fight this case. I'm like, well, I do want to play. I will fight. And so that's how the whole Supreme Court journey took place because I signed with Seattle and then the NBA uh, slammed me with an injunction that I cannot play because, you know, I was an underclassman. I had one more year left in eligibility. And, but I had played a pro year. And so uh, I set out for the first 10 games and then we got an injunction the rights to play but lo and behold i didn't know that they would have you know like the moves on me when i walked out on the floor it was like ladies and gentlemen we got an illegal player on the floor and he must be escorted out of this arena and they got another injunction <laughs> and they would escort me out of the arena put me on the bus and i sit on the bus waiting for the team and everything to finish because i couldn't go into the locker room or anything and then the next time I got a 10-day spread, I played, but uh, Chet Walker, the great Hall of Famer Chet Walker, was warming up on the other end. He said he hurt his ankle, 
and the Chicago Bulls sued me for $600,000 for being on the court. And, um, and then later on, I go to Cincinnati, and this was, you know, when things were moving forward in the court system. I go to Cincinnati to play the Royals, and they get an injunction, and they said, ladies and gentlemen, we must move him out of the, the arena, off the grounds in which he sat on, of this arena sat on. So they put me out into the snow on the outer edge of the bank. And, uh, you know, everybody's talking about Blue Lives Matter and all this stuff. I'll tell you, the policemen who was who were honoring that um, that injunction, they allowed me to sit in their car and warm up because I was freezing out there. It was it was bad. But then later on, the case had moved through all of the court system all the way to the Supreme Court, and they was given a hearing there, and we were given our hearing. And lo and behold, the case came out seven. I think it was seven to two in favor of me. And thus we have the Spencer Haywood rule, but the league and colleges and everybody said, never, 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 because everybody was involved with this. The NC2A thought, well, you know, this is going to raid our college athletes and we won't have the income that would be generated from these athletes. So we're losing it. So that's why they were involved in the case on the backside underneath and then, of course, Denver was just fighting, and then the University of Detroit saying that I owe them money. So I had four cases going on, all kinds of stuff going on. And and the Players Association of the the older players, the greats, the Wilts and all Will Chamberlain, Oscar, and all those guys, had been told by the owners that if this case was won, they would be out of a job because. Guess who's coming? Spencer Haywood, Julius Irvin, George McGinnis, George Gervin. <laughs> All these young guys are going to come. They're going to push you out. So the union did not back me. And then when we got to Milwaukee to play the Bucks, uh, everybody normally go downstairs into the locker room and make me stand out there and be, you know, like this ostracized player. And Kareem didn't. He came up and we stood there in the middle of the floor waiting, waiting. And we dapped, and the Sports Illustrated had the picture of Sports Magazine. They had pictures in all over the country. They had that picture standing there. And that's when all the players said, hey, this is the new era. Let's go play. And that's when I had my freedom after all of those fights. And 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 then I, I started asking, and my legal team uh, was asking, you know, why, why is this ruling not named after him? And they brought up the Kurt Flood story that Kurt's rule didn't pass, and they're going to give it to Andy Musselsmith. They gave it to him under his name. And uh, with me, they gave me my rule. It's called the hardship. It's called early entry. It's called one and done. (laughs) It's called everything but what it is. It's Haywood versus the NBA. It's a Supreme Court ruling. So... uh, Hopefully, the late the David Stern still and I was, a great place in the history. Yeah, and the late David Stern and I was, we had a long, long chat, and, and he was like, you know, maybe it's the time that it should be called the Spencer Haver Rule. That's why the book, I went a long way to get to the book, but that's why the book is named the Spencer Haver Rule because it'll give those players, which they don't know me, all of these NBA players have no idea what I did and what, it's, what it was all about. But it give them a chance 
to know that uh, there was someone who stood up for them. Did, did, did you feel at the time that what you were doing was connected with the broader black freedom struggle that was happening in the streets? Did you see it as connected with that? Yeah, because, you know, it was brutal. I, I didn't I didn't have the militant attitude of John Carlos or somebody like that, but I was I knew it was something it was a movement going on and it was and it was very racial because you know they called me out when I go out on on the floor they called me all kinds of names that I've heard in Mississippi all of my life so mm-hmm. I, I felt something but I didn't see the impact at all I mean I just I was just trying to I focus on the idea. I'm going to get my mother out of this cotton field. And I just want to play basketball. I, I love the game of basketball to this day. And so I, it was just that attitude. But I, as far as the impact of it all, I didn't feel it. And in fact, when uh, the case was won, we were playing the Baltimore Bullets in Baltimore. And Thurgood Marshall and Will Robinson came in town. Will came in town. They brought it was taking me out to dinner and he was explaining the importance of my case one under the Sherman Antitrust Act. And guess what I was thinking about, Dave? I was asking him, how many steaks am I going to eat tonight? Mm. Yeah. That. <laughs> so, so that's the impact. Yeah. When you're young like that, you know, stuff like that happened, man. But that's, uh, that's old Spencer. Silver City, Mississippi. Silver City, Mississippi. You know, you've been so. Guess what? There ain't no silver, and it ain't no city. <laughs> I mean, your your legacy is so vast. I mean, we're just scratching the surface. What are you most proud of, looking back, of all you've accomplished? I would think that Supreme Court ruling is the most important thing, and a close second is my Olympic year, mm. and. My uh, my my next thing was, was was you know marrying and falling in love with Iman and having a family and she's this great model from Somalia who was the top model in the country and we had this kinship and this relationship because she's out of Africa small place I'm out of Mississippi small place so we cling to each other we had this kind of you know, feeling of love always. And uh, that was that was beautiful. And then, of course, when I got to L.A., I decided to change up my life and become a big-time Coke user. And uh, that, that put everything on hold and kind of destroyed all of the relationships I've had. And also, it, it took away from my game, threw my game into a tailspin, because I got there, I was average. I just came in from from uh, Louisiana, from the, with Pistol Pete and all of us down in the New Orleans Jazz. I was averaging 24 and 12. I get to L.A. I'm playing with Magic, Kareem, uh, Norm Nixon, Jamal Wilkes. I mean, Michael Cooper, Jim Jones, all of his players, and we had everything going for us. And here I am, you know, dragging myself around and looking for another hit or, and it was just a horrible, horrible experience for me. And so I was able to, to go through that season. We won the championship, but I mean, 
the players on the team was like, man, you got to go someplace. You got to do something and get yourself straight because this is not good. And so that's when uh, Jerry West and uh, Dr. Buss says, well, we're not going to let you go to another team in, in the NBA because Dallas, Dallas Mavericks was coming on and they wanted to take the you know, players that was having some issues because they were the new expansion team. But they were like, no, Bill Sharman said, we need to send him someplace out of this country and let him regroup because Spencer's a good person. He's a good player, great player. So we ended up going to Venice, Italy. I, I call myself being exiled to Venice. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> the beautiful, the most beautiful city in Europe. And it also worked out pretty good, too, because we got a chance to kindle our marriage because Iman took all of her shows were in in Bologna, Milan, and also in Paris. So we were like close to each other there. We could do some some getting together and stuff like that. So I got myself straight and got myself back to America. And we had that great season with the Washington Bullets. We took uh, the Boston Celtics to six, and it was really stressful for the Celtics. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then. And then when I get back, I mean, we're like playing again. Then she gets involved in a bad accident in, in, in New York in a taxi. And I have my young daughter and I had her two sisters and a brother living with me uh, in New York. So, and they didn't know the language. They were speaking the language, but it was like, I need a break. And I didn't know how to ask for a break and say, hey, I need a break. You know, today you can get a break, but back then they just chalk it all up as, you know, you're a drug, you go. And so mm-hmm. I went back home and I never got back into the game. To my, you know, it's my, it's on me for the, for the journey I took there, but uh, it hurts because I saw other players getting treatment and getting things and going back into the league where, the, you know, everything came back to that case where they were like, we finally got him. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, That's just, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, this is going to need to be a movie at some point. I mean, sure do. <laughs> and we it's, haven't even, <laughs> yeah. We haven't even scratched oh, the man, surface. We, yeah, I know. I know. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, but I mean, you've been so generous with your time. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what you think of the game today. Uh, do, oh. do you watch basketball now? Do you like basketball now? How do you think he would have competed in today's game? Okay. He would in his prime. Yeah, I would. I would kill him. Yeah, I think because so. Because this game today is is fits my game. Because when I when I when I when I went into the ABA into the and into Seattle, I ripped the ball off the floor and dribbling it up, and then I kicked it out to Lenny Wilkins, and he kicked it back to me, and I took off from the free throw line and dunked, and I said, Yeah. And they said, boo, what a hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I was like out of my, my category, but you know, I could run the floor. I could rebound. I could do all those things. I could shoot from the outside, inside. It would have been a a perfect fit for me in this, in today's game. But, you know, I fit it, I fit in very well with our era, but I'll tell you what these guys are doing today and how they they take care of their body and how they just play. I'm telling you, I've watched basketball and I've been involved in basketball since 1970. 
I haven't seen it like this. Mm. I have not seen this kind of talent. And when you say talent, I mean they just the evolution of the game is so it just shows what we what we created and how the evolution has came to fruition. And then to go into a bubble in a pandemic with all of the racial tension that's going on in America and to play and to play with putting your life on the line with, you know, hoping that you don't get COVID and stuff. Hey, this is the best season of basketball. This is the season of basketball to be remembered. And this playoffs has been awesome. So when you talk about, you know, the game and, and where it is today, this has brought it to another level. And uh, the play has been tremendous. I wish I could see – I was watching the game last night, yelling and stuff. I wish Miami was was healthy. Yeah, me so too. So I could see a real poor throat. But uh, I have enjoyed all the playoffs. I don't miss – I watch every game. We got lead pass. You know, I was the chairman of the board for the NBA retired players for years. And – and so I, I know the business of basketball and everything. I must say one more thing about the current players. Please. The current players look back at us and said, you know, we got Oscar Robinson, Spencer Haywood, Dave Cowens, all of these players. What are y'all doing for health insurance? Nothing. We don't have any. We, we buy our own personal health insurance. Okay. Let's have a meeting. They had a meeting with Michelle Robinson, with the other owners in the league, and they decided, okay. We're going to drop 15 to $16 million a year for our former players to have the health insurance that we have. And that has saved mm-hmm. so many lives, old players' lives and stuff. So these guys are, are the real deal. They, this is the real dudes. So Sir, you them. are the real dude. I want one more thing, though. I want one more thing from them. And I want my name on my ruling, the Spencer Hayward yes. rule. Yeah. That now you have to do that. You can't just keep one and done. There's no such thing as a one and done. There's like no such thing as an early entry. There's no such thing as a hardship. You know, it is no, what it is. And you have right. done it with the Larry Bird rule. Larry Bird got a, had the rule and the Oscar Robinson rule. Where's my rule? No, that's right. Every that's single time the play comes out. I was saying every single time a player comes out early, they should say, oh, he's 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 pulling a Spencer Haywood. He's doing a Spencer Haywood. He's yeah. exercising his Spencer Haywood rights. Right. And, and and not only that, but, you know, the case was won under the Sherman Antitrust Act, where you cannot stop a player from making a living. Now, the European players got a pretty good out. They go in the pros at 14, 15, and 16, and then they come – over here and play. So they are not like bound by the college system. And I think the college system doing uh, at this pandemic time, they should be also looking to uh, give those players lifetime health insurance to do something different than what they're doing. Just taking all the money and, and saying, well, you're a student athlete. You need to do something different. I would like to see that happen as well. Spencer Haywood. I, I got to ask you this, who, you know, we all say that when, you know, you meet people, sometimes they exceed your expectations. Sometimes they don't meet your expectations. When you were playing ball, who was, 
you know, it doesn't even have to be a basketball player, but who is one person that you met who is of great fame, who is much cooler and nicer than you would have thought? Kareem. Kareem. The most misunderstood dude ever. (laughs) Why do you say that? Because I think that the media and different people thought because he was, he went to be a, a, he wanted to be a Muslim and he was a Muslim that he was anti-Israel, anti-white. They got it confused with whether it was the nation of Islam or was it just Islam in itself. and, and, and he didn't help matters because, you know, we would be traveling when I was with the Lakers and, and you know, like little stuff ticked him off because he was so tall and people played with him and messed with him and stuff. And, and I was like, big fella, it's not that serious. Mm-hmm. And we, we finally got a chance to, you know, like to see him now. And when he did this recent article, uh, when these young players, and uh, I think in Philadelphia, the Eagles, mm-hmm. when they were talking about the Jewish nation and stuff, and we were like, what the hell are they doing? This has been our biggest allies throughout all of the civil rights movement and everything. And this has been our kinship. This has been our brother. And again, Kareem wrote that piece in the New York Times, I said. When I, when I called him, I was like, finally, you're getting a big fella. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because he has been so misunderstood. And, you know, when you talk about the greatest players to ever play the game, boy, I was just looking at LeBron last night. I was like, is he better than Jordan? Is he better than Kareem? Mm. So I'm just sitting there looking at it like, wow, this guy can play. And that Anthony Davis, my God. Great playing. I tell you, Dave, we, we're witnessing some good stuff, man, in, in the world of sports and the world of activism. And I know you've been, you know, you've been in there. You've been in the battles. You always spoke about truth and so and write about truth. And I appreciate you for it. Oh, my goodness. I appreciate you. I appreciate your legacy. And I definitely appreciate this amazing book, The Spencer Haywood Rule. Spencer Haywood, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. All right. Thank you. Be well, sir. Be well, too, sir. Bye. Bye. That was Spencer Haywood, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back right after this word from the Nation Mets. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much to Spencer Haywood. What an amazing person. The book is called The Spencer Haywood Rule, Battles Basketball and the Making of an American Iconoclast. I read it this week. I tore through it. You're going to love it. Uh, I've got some choice words right now that I co-wrote with a writer named Peter Dreyer. And it's called Making Black Lives Matter On and Off the Diamond. 
okay, look, the election of Donald Trump and the upsurge of protest against police violence has catalyzed a new wave of activism among professional athletes. Colin Kaepernick, Megan Rapinoe, LeBron James, Sean Doolittle are among the growing number of athletes who've been using their celebrity platforms to speak out. Players on championship baseball, football, basketball, and soccer teams have refused to attend White House ceremonies with Trump. Entire leagues were shut down last month, of course, when players went on a political strike for black lives following the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now, baseball is the most conservative and tradition-bound of the major team sports. Moreover, the number of black athletes on major league rosters has declined precipitously from about 19% in 1981 to less than 8% this year. So it shocked the sports world when baseball teams joined the strikes for racial justice. Now, baseball has struck out in promoting black Americans at the management level. Only three in 30 major league baseball managers are black. The Miami Marlins' Michael Hill is the only black general manager and there are no black people among the 30 principal owners of MLB teams. Perhaps it's no accident that MLB is BLM backwards. Despite the legacy of social justice icons like Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente, and Kurt Flood, MLB has typically chosen to symbolically bathe in that history rather than confront the present. That is why it was welcome news last week when MLB, in conjunction with the Major League Baseball Players Association, announced a $10 million donation to the Players Alliance, a new organization of more than 100 current and former black players who want baseball to take action for racial justice within and outside the sport. Because the announcement was somewhat vague about how MLB and the MLBPA will partner with the Players Alliance, here are 10 initiatives to translate these good intentions into actions. One, follow LeBron James's lead and players should participate in and help fund voter registration and get out the vote drives, particularly in black and brown communities that face ongoing voter suppression efforts. Two, the baseball establishment should do the right thing and elect Kurt Flood into the Hall of Fame. Flood would have posted Hall of Fame eligible numbers had he not been banished from baseball at age 32 because he sued baseball over the reserve clause. He lost his case in the U.S. Supreme Court, but he laid the groundwork for ending the system of indentured servitude and ushering in free agency. All pro athletes owe flooded debt of gratitude. Three, and actually this number three is something that just happened right before we started recording this podcast, which is really cool. But Peter Dreyer and I wrote that Major League Baseball should remove the name of ardent racist Kennesaw Mountain Landis from the annual MVP award. Uh, And Landis was the baseball commissioner who consistently opposed racial integration. And the sport didn't get Jackie Robinson to break the color line until three years after he died. Well, baseball just announced that they were going to take Landis's name off the MVP award. That's very cool. Four, baseball should eliminate shameful sweatshop conditions, low pay and chronic workplace injuries in the Costa Rican factory system where baseballs have been manufactured for years. Five, to rebuild black support for baseball, Major League Baseball should do more to help financially strap cities and inner city schools restore and expand baseball fields and pay for coaches in public, middle, and high schools and fund Little League and other youth programs in communities of color. Six, Major League teams whose billionaire owners laid off over 30,000 stadium workers when Corona canceled the season should provide health insurance during the pandemic to low-wage stadium employees. Seven, players 
and their union should support efforts by workers to unionize, which improves pay and working conditions among the nation's most vulnerable people. Eight, Major League Baseball Players Association should insist that teams stay only in union hotels, but they shouldn't be asked to stay in hotels, especially where workers are on strike to avoid the embarrassment of having players cross a union picket line as the Dodgers and Yankees did during the 2018 playoffs and World Series in Boston. Nine, the Major League Baseball Players Association should help minor league players unionize. Still subject to Major League teams' absolute control, they endure pay and working conditions that's a far, far cry, far cry, from how the public perceives the lives of professional athletes. Typical starting monthly salary for a minor league baseball player is about $1,100 a month. And players often lack the money to eat three square meals a day. And 10, baseball should train and hire more black and brown managers, coaches, and GMs in the minor leagues to create a pipeline into MLB. If Major League Baseball wants to live up to the memory of Jackie Robinson, who is an activist as well as an athlete, and needs to do more than offer rhetoric that black lives matter, it must match its words with deeds. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the San Diego Loyal. That's uh, MLS team coached by the great Landon Donovan. Uh, They have a player on the team who's openly gay. His name is Colin Martin. And he was the victim of a homophobic slur during the San Diego Loyals match against the Phoenix Rising. And Landon Donovan and Colin Martin led San Diego in walking off the pitch in protest over the incident just after halftime, which caused the team to forfeit the match and end their chances of reaching the playoffs. But they did it anyway. And I have a clip right here of Landon Donovan explaining why they did what they did. So we've been through a lot in the last week. This, this club, our players, the organization has been through a lot in the last week. And I understand that most people watching from afar probably don't really get it, but we've been living it. And so went through a really hard incident last week in the LA match. And we made a vow to ourselves, to our community, to our players, to the club, to USL, that we would not stand for bigotry, homophobic slurs, um, things that don't belong in our game. And so much so that on our signboards, we made a statement saying, I will act, I will speak, right? So if something happens, I'm gonna speak about it and I'm gonna act about it. Because last week our one regret was we should have done something in the moment when Elijah was racially abused. And that was our regret from our players, from me, I wish we would have done something. Um, 
And had we known, had we known what had happened, I think we would have done something. So we also agreed with Phoenix before the game, our players reached out to their players and said in the 71st minute, which was the minute that it happened to Elijah last week, we were gonna stop the game. We were gonna hold a banner together that said, I will act, I will speak, I will act. Because we don't wanna just talk about it, we actually wanna do it and we wanted to send a message. So in the end of the first half, um, Colin came over to the fourth official after <laughs> crazily somehow he got red carded um, and told the fourth official that he had been um, abused by a homophobic slur by one of their players. And when I heard that, uh, I lost it because I know what this team has gone through. I know how hard it was for them to even take the field tonight, given everything that happened. And then for it to happen again a week later um, was just devastating for me. So it was a really difficult probably 20 minutes because our players in the heart of the moment and the passion of the moment still wanted to play. I mean, they were kicking Phoenix's ass, right? And that's a great feeling as a soccer player. But if we want to be true to who we are as a club, um, we have to speak and we have to act. So after halftime, um, we all decided that if the player who used the homophobic, homophobic slur was not removed from the game, either through the officials or through their coach, that we were not going to play. Because if they're not willing to act, then we have to act. We have no choice. I asked the referee to um, do something about it. He said he couldn't. Um, he said he heard the word. He knew the, he knew the word was said, but he didn't know what it means. He doesn't know what that means. So he couldn't interpret it and he didn't want to send him off because he doesn't know what the word means. Fair enough. I can, I can understand that. If you don't speak another language, he doesn't speak, uh, whatever that was Jamaican. Um, then that's fine. I also then went to their coach and said, I just want to be really clear on this. We've had a really hard week. He and I talked about it before the game about how much we've been through. And I just said, if you don't pull the player off the field, if you don't sub him off, our players are not going to play because we have to make a stand. So either you do it or else we're going to have to do it. And he said, I'm not going to sub him off the field. I said, okay, that's fair. That's your choice. Um, and then our guys, to their immense credit, just said, we're not going to stand for this. They were very clear in that moment that they were giving up all hopes of making the playoffs, even though they were beating um, one of the best teams in the league handedly but they said it doesn't matter there's things more important in life and we have to stick up for for what we believe in and so they made the decision to walk off and uh i have tremendous pride uh, in this group and i'm really proud of this organization that i get to be a part of it thank you so much landon donovan thank you so much colin martin thank you so much to the san diego loyal for not just talking it but walking it you get the just stand up award the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week Sit your ass down. has got to go to Charles Barkley because Charles Barkley needs to issue a retraction. He needs to do more than just sit down. He needs to speak out about everything he's gotten wrong about the Breonna Taylor case. People know, of course, Breonna Taylor was shot and killed in her bed by Louisville police officers. And uh, uh, Charles Barkley went on the air and led with the fiction that uh, Breonna Taylor died because her boyfriend shot at the police before they shot into the house, killing her. 
Uh, we now have a lot of evidence that says that's not true. We have a lot of evidence that says Daniel Cameron, the perniciously ambitious uh, attorney general for the state of Kentucky, uh, who is a protege of Mitch McConnell and an absolute uh, like a, a play toy for Donald Trump, uh, who's now climbing over Breonna Taylor's body on the course of his own ambitions. Uh, Daniel Cameron did not tell the truth. To the, to the public in terms of what he said to the grand jury in terms of issuing charges. People in the grand jury have spoken out and said that Daniel Cameron is lying about the facts that he put forward. Charles Barkley needs to say, okay, maybe I didn't know everything I thought I did when I said that Breonna Taylor died because of her boyfriend, because that's absolute, absolute, absolute crap. So Charles Barkley, sit your ass down and issue a retraction. Before we go away this week, uh, I got nothing in Kaepernick watch. What I have instead that I want to talk about is uh, the late Bob Gibson, uh, who passed away at the age of 84. He was Dr. Martin Luther King's favorite baseball player, legendarily threw for a record 1.12 ERA in 1968. Uh, As Bob Gibson said in his book, he said, uh, this is from Bob Gibson's memoir, he wrote, There is glory in winning three World Series games and attaining financial security, but I will not be satisfied until all people are treated equally. I will not be satisfied until the fight for civil rights is won. Then and only then will there be glory. Rest in power to Bob Gibson. That's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much to Spencer Haywood. Thank you so much to Mark Spears and Gary Washburn for writing this amazing book, The Spencer Haywood Rule. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there listening, if you like the show, please give it a rating. Please write a little review. All that stuff helps very much. Tell a friend. We're trying to build a community here, trying to build a good listenership. We love the people who listen to this pod, and we want you to put out the word. Please help us do that. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.